a, a series on the I am statements of Jesus and, and today we've got the perfect statement of I am the resurrection and life because it's obviously the perfect picture uh, for an Easter morning. And today what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be working through John chapter 20 and the way that um, in John chapter 20 it relates to us the events of that Easter morning. So before... Um, I'm not going to start with a story. I'm not going to start with a little analogy. I thought we'd just read the first 10 verses of that chapter and just remind ourselves afresh of the events of that Easter um, where we are greeted with the empty tomb. So I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Um, All the other translations will be fairly similar. So whatever you've got in front of you, please join me as we read along. This is John chapter 20, verse 1. Now... On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord from the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You know, I think what struck me as I was reading through that account again and I was thinking about Easter was that you expect the account of the resurrection where they come and they see that the tomb is empty and Jesus is no longer there. You expect it to be accompanied by all this praise and all these shouts of joy and celebration because the picture we had before was Jesus crucified on the cross, brutally executed for our sake, being the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. And you expect here where, you, where the disciples or where Peter and the other disciple were told about and Mary, they appear at the tomb. There's nothing there. God has breathed life back into Jesus. He's risen back from the dead. You expect these shouts of joy and celebration. But all you kind of get here in the first 10 verses is really utter confusion. Mary's convinced that someone's stolen the body out of the tomb. She ran back. The Lord, someone's taken the body away. The Lord, we read in the next couple of verses, she was weeping outside at the prospect that someone would disrespect his body in that manner by taking it out of the tomb. And the disciples, well, in verse 9, we're just told that they didn't understand. They didn't understand that this is what must happen. See, the people there just did not know what to do with the reality of the empty tomb. And I think if we're honest, a lot of people still today don't know what to do with the reality of the empty tomb. You know, some people will say, well, it never really happened. They might ignore the statements that Jesus made, which seem to suggest a prediction that this would indeed happen to him. They ignore the Old Testament scriptures that might point towards this point in time in the future. They ignore the certification of his death that would have been done by a Roman officer, the way the tomb would have been sealed and a Roman guard placed in front to ensure this very thing didn't happen. They ignore the way his body was wrapped up and anointed in a way which would make this whole theft along these lines would have been all the more difficult. They'll kind of ignore all those things and they'll just dismiss it because the idea of a resurrection is a little bit too difficult to grasp. 
Some people will no doubt be thinking, well, even if I do believe, or even if there was a resurrection, it doesn't really impact me here and now. And then others might be saying, well, maybe it is important. I'll put it in the important to know facts in my mind, but perhaps don't really appreciate the true significance of that moment. You know, most of us, if not all of us, will probably put ourselves in one of those categories. Because if I was going to stop and ask you, what does the reality of the empty tomb mean for you, I wonder what you would say. If I was going to pose you the question, what difference does it make that Jesus rose from the dead, I imagine a lot of you, like I did, would have to stop and reflect on that for a while. Because the answer is not one which is particularly easy to grasp. So what we're going to do, or what I'd like us to do this morning, is to try and put to one side what we think we know about the significance of the resurrection. I'd like us to put aside what might be our preconceived ideas of what the empty tomb means. I'd like to focus on the balance of John chapter 20, where Jesus appears to people after he has risen from the dead. And I want to focus on what Jesus himself said about his own resurrection. I want us to look at the statements of Jesus and ask the question, what is he trying to communicate to us about the significance of his very own resurrection on this incredible morning? See, the scene then moves in verses 11 through to 18 to Mary Magdalene. As I said, she was standing outside the front of the tomb. She's weeping. She's convinced that someone has taken away, that they've stolen the body of Jesus. She sees two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had been. They ask her why she's weeping. She tells them it's because someone's taken away her Lord. You'd have to think she doesn't recognize them as angels because then Jesus is actually standing right near her and it says that she doesn't recognize Jesus either. She thinks Jesus is the gardener. And in fact, she thinks maybe this is the person who's taken away the body. So she asks that person, thinking it's the gardener, saying, if you know where the body of Jesus is, please tell me so I can go get it. I want to retrieve it so I can put it back and we can just make this right. Let's just pretend it never happened as though the body of Jesus was really meant to be there. Let's just make sure that's where it stays and it's okay. And then it's like all of a sudden her eyes are open because Jesus actually calls her by name. In verse 16, he just says, Mary. And all of a sudden, a light switches on. And this man's no longer the gardener. She says, Rabbi, teacher. No longer the gardener, he's teacher. The reality of the risen Jesus, she realizes is standing right in front of her. The body hasn't been stolen. No one's taken it away. God has breathed life back into that body and he is standing right there. And right at that moment, when when Mary is wrapping her head around what this could really mean, let's look at what Jesus says. He says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, don't hold on to me now. I'm in the process of doing a work of there's other things for me to do here and now before I ascend to be with God in heaven forever. But then he says, get this, go to my disciples. No, he doesn't call them that. Go to my followers. No. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your father to my God 
and your God. Do you see how personal those words are? All of a sudden, he calls his disciples his brothers, part of the same family, a member of the same family as the one creator God who created all the heavens and the earth, who has all power and authority, who has just demonstrated power over and even death. That same God, he's saying, is their father as much as he is the father of Jesus Christ. We are part of the same family now, united together through what Jesus has achieved on the cross where he paid the death for our sins, he took the punishment that we deserved, and now he rises again, and one of the first statements he makes is, my father is now your father. You have a completely different relationship with God now because of what I have achieved on the cross and the fact that I'm here with you alive on this day. Amen? First thing he says, the resurrection means now my God is your God, my father is your father. It's a changed relationship. You know, the Old Testament scripture speaks so much of a God who is to be feared. The Old Testament is holy and therefore demands holiness from his people. Same God yesterday, today, and he will be forever. It's the same God on the cross because that wrath was borne by me on the cross. That judgment was borne by me on the cross. And that holiness is now yours through faith because the one holy, unblemished sacrifice was made on the cross. My Father is your Father. He's the same God, but our relationship has completely changed because of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So what difference does it make that God is our Father? Well, a Father describes a God who is always present, doesn't it? It describes a God who is involved in our life all the way through, not a God who is passive or staring at us uninvolved from afar. That's not a Father. A Father describes a God who is personal, who is intimately involved in our lives, through every moment of our lives, not just Sundays, not just significant events on the Christian calendar like today, but Monday through Saturday, every aspect. That's a father. A father describes a person who unconditionally loves his children. And all the parents out there will recognize that words just cannot describe the depth of love that you have for your child. And that's the sort of relationship Jesus immediately describes us between us and this almighty, holy, incredible, creator God. Yes, but he's also an intimate God who is our father. Because we deserve it? No, because Jesus did it. He did that work. Right back in the first chapter of this same book, chapter John, John chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, Yet to all who received him, referring to Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't it interesting? This, this whole concept is flagged right in the first chapter of John. And here we are in chapter 20, the first moment where Jesus is from the dead. And it's that same concept that comes through. To those who receive him, if those who believe, those who have faith, you can become children of God. My father is your father. God can be our father in the same way he was the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't just speak of a changed relationship. He also speaks of a new purpose. See, the scene then switches in verses 19 to 23 as Jesus appears to his disciples now. Appeared to Mary at the start, flagged a changed relationship. Now he moves and he appears to his disciples. 
And in verse 19, those disciples are described as hiding behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. What are they afraid of? You would imagine they're afraid that they would still be heading towards the same outcome that Jesus was, where the Jews sacrificed him on the cross. Or, particularly, you might think, now there's an empty tomb, the Jews would be pointing the finger at them, saying these guys are probably the ones who would have taken that body. They're hiding behind closed doors, afraid. And Jesus appears to them, though, and he shows them his hands and side as proves that he was the same Jesus who was crucified on the cross. The same Jesus who was then laid to rest in Joseph's tomb and who God breathed life back into his body and was standing there in front of them. And then it says that Jesus turned their joy, sorry, their fear turned into joy. The fear that they were, that they were, that they were um, enslaved by as they were hidden behind those doors all of a sudden turned to joy as they were exposed to the reality of a risen Jesus Christ. And then what does Jesus say? We've heard what he said to Mary. What does he now say to the disciples? He says, peace be with you. Don't be scared anymore. Don't hide behind closed doors anymore. That's not where I want you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, now I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You know, the message that Mary was told to deliver to the disciples was one of a changed relationship. The message that Jesus delivers personally to the disciples is a new purpose. He says, I am sending you. What was he sending the disciples to do? He was sending them to go out from behind closed doors in the power of the Holy Spirit and share the truth of this changed relationship with whoever would listen. To share this mercy and this grace and this love and forgiveness that could only be available because of what Jesus did on the cross. And we see that message go out in the book of Acts where they then receive the Holy Spirit in full on the day of Pentecost and they go out and they say, you were dead in your sins but Jesus died in your place. You deserve death, but Jesus paid that death, and now you can have life. That was the message that went out in a nutshell. And people believed in droves, hundreds of thousands, and the early church was born. They were sent out. They were sent out here, and he sent them out again, the Great Commission. Jesus continued, he sent them out. He said, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus rose again. He said, my father is now your father and now I am sending you to share this incredible message of grace with whoever would listen. Church, for those of us who follow Jesus Christ, we need to remember that we are a people who are being sent. You know, one thing I'm always struck by in Melbourne is just about how spread out we are. You know, I do work in, um, in the city. I live in Ringwood East. I'm getting to know a kindergarten community in Ringwood, Bayswater. I'm doing church in Kilsyth. I've got friends from outer east through the northern suburbs. Like, you just feel spread everywhere. As a church, we've got so many local um, community groups that we connect with. We've got um, so many primary schools that we interact with and high schools. We've got families that are out in, like, Roville, Yarra Junction, North Croydon, past Ringwood, you name it. And each of those families and, and communities has their own little subsets where they interact with schools and workplaces and sporting clubs and you name it. We are such a spread-out people. We have so many different communities that we interact with. But what an incredible, although that creates has created a few logistical problems for our church. 
What incredible potential if each of us went out into those communities and said, I am being sent. I am being sent there by a living God. I am being sent there to share God's message of forgiveness and grace. I am being sent there, not in my own strength, with my own abilities and my own words, but because I've received the Holy Spirit and I know that He goes with me. He will give me the words so that whoever might listen might know and understand the truth of this changed relationship that we have through Jesus and His resurrection from the dead. Church, we have a purpose. We have a mission We are being sent wherever we are and into whatever different communities we might do life in. But that's not all there is too. Because of the resurrection, we have a changed relationship. We have a new purpose, but we also have a new life. See, whatever reason, um, Thomas wasn't with the disciples when Jesus first appeared to them. So the disciples turned to Thomas and they tried to tell him um, everything that happened. But Thomas turns to them and effectively says, he, until he sees it with his own eyes, he's not going to believe it. And I've got to say, I've got a bit of sympathy for Thomas in his position because the resurrection from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the, people don't just rise from the dead. It's not something that's physically possible. By asking someone to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, we're asking someone to believe in the miraculous. We're asking someone, we're asking ourselves to believe in something that simply is not possible but for the existence of a creator and life-giving God who has power over even death. It requires a leap of faith, doesn't it? It does. It requires a leap of faith. And that's the Christian walk, isn't it? It's a walk of faith. Faith that, yes, there is a God. Faith that, yes, I believe that Jesus was a son of God. And faith that, yes, he's not just a God. He's a God who loved us so much that he sent that Jesus to die a death for us. And he raised him again victorious. And he raised him again because this creator, life-giving God, has power over sin and even has power over death. But that requires a leap of faith. And Thomas wasn't really really willing to go there at that point. So what does Jesus do? He appears again. And he gives Thomas the same opportunity in person as he gave the disciples eight days earlier. And this is the conversation that happens between them. In verses 27 to 29, Jesus says to Thomas, says, put your finger here, see my hands. Now put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas, have faith. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. You can see the recognition already of that changed relationship, can't you? They're personal words saying, The God is my God. He is my Lord. He is master over my life. I will submit everything to him. He's come to that point now that he has seen it with his own eyes. My Lord and my God. Then Jesus says to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? The answer is obviously yes. Well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, it's hard to believe in something you haven't seen with your own eyes. 
It's hard to take that leap of faith. But Jesus says, those who are willing to do it, for those who are willing to believe in this incredible truth, there is blessing. You might say, well, what blessing is there? What blessing is there if we believe in a risen Jesus, the Son of God? Well, let's read verse 30, 31. Let's read this carefully. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which we have not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have a life in his name. There's the blessing. That's the blessing, that by believing in a risen Jesus Christ, we can have life. We can have a new life. Now, you might be saying, well, Paul, I already have life. But that's not the sort of life it's talking about in John verse 30, chapter 20, verse 31. That's not the sort of life Jesus is referring to through his ministry. When Jesus refers to this sort of life, he's talking about a fullness of life that can only be found in the presence of God. It's talking about a life that is characterized by his presence through the Holy Spirit, a life that is freed from the power of sin and death because of what Jesus has done on the cross, an everlasting life in which we dwell in the presence of God and that continues into all eternity. That's the sort of life he's saying. He's saying for those who are willing to take this leap of faith, for those who are willing to believe, you can have that kind of life. That is resurrection life. Now, many of you will know that um, my wife, Melody, and I have had a difficult time over the last month. And I've shied away from going there because I wanted today to be on the focus of Jesus and not on our personal journey. But there's one aspect of that story that I did want to share. You know, in mid-March, Melody and I, we went in for a scan and we found out that um, she was 26 weeks pregnant and that things with our, our daughter, Lily April, weren't looking very good. And within hours, we were taken by ambulance to the Mercy Hospital and we were told that, uh, indeed, her life was looking quite fragile. And so there were a lot of hard conversations there and they basically said... We had the choice to either elect to have pretty significant surgery to take her out, um, take her out of the Mel's body, um, and, but there was very little likelihood that they could give us that she would survive that process and there were significant implications for both Melody and, and for our family. And the alternative is we could continue with the pregnancy for a little bit longer and see how, um, see how it went, knowing that her life was looking extremely fragile. Now, those days in the mercy, they, they were some of the hardest conversations and hardest days we've ever had as a husband and a wife and as a mum and dad. And one afternoon when we were sort of processing what was going on, um, a woman came into our room who was a friend of one of our family. Um, and she came in and we talked to her because sometimes it's actually easier to talk to people that you've never really met before. And she said, look, is it okay if I pray with you? And I'll never remember, forget what she says. She said, it's really hard to know what to pray in these circumstances. But if it's okay with you, I would like to pray for resurrection life for little Lily April. And she went on to pray that Lily, at just 26 weeks, would know a fullness of life in the presence of Jesus. 
she went on to pray that Lily would feel the arms of her loving Heavenly Father wrapped around her even in the womb. And she prayed that Lily would take comfort from that presence of God and take comfort from the eternal hope that we have in the power of a living God who reigns in high victorious and would be there for all eternity. Now, Lily passed away less than a week later. But that's still, that remains the most impacting prayer ever. And what was impacting about it was that the, um, we knew in our hearts that that resurrection life wasn't just for Lily, that was for us. In that room and for the rest of that week, we felt a thick presence of God. We felt comfort in the midst of turmoil. We felt comfort in the arms of our God and our Father. That there was peace in the midst of hardship because we knew there was always hope in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. That there was always hope that the life that we have in him is a life that surpasses even death. John chapter 11, um, verse 25. It's written up behind me. You don't even need to turn to it. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You know, we've done a whole lot of series on the I am statements of Jesus. And you've got to say, it's hard to find any I am statement that is more impacting than this one. Where Jesus said, in the midst of death, He was facing the death of his friend Lazarus and he was weeping over that moment. And he said, even in the midst of death, he could stand there and say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he might die, yet shall he live. You know, when we remember Jesus' resurrection, we are challenged to place our faith in a resurrection life that surpasses even death. In a life that is characterized by the presence of a living God. In a life that is abundant, that breathes hope into our soul, that breathes life into our, in, into our dwelling, that fills us with a knowledge that his saving grace and forgiveness will be with us into all eternity, such that it can never perish, spoil or fade. It can never be taken away from us. Just like the living Jesus Christ will be with there, reigning on high for all eternity. That is true resurrection and life. And he said, I am the resurrection and life because you can't find it anywhere else. If you find it somewhere else, then it's not Jesus. But he said, I am it. You will not find it in anyone or anywhere else because I am the resurrection and the life. Though you may die physically, when you will find spiritual life in me that will be with you as a blessing for all eternity. So what do we make of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Don't let it leave you confused. We have a new relationship. We have a relationship with a personal and intimate Father God. We have a new purpose. We are sent. We are sent to share that relationship with others that they might just get a glimpse of the person Jesus Christ and the truth that can be found in him. And we have a new life, a thick presence of God that can never 
ever, ever, ever be taken away from us. Don't let this Easter slip past without opening up a conversation with God about these things. Don't let this Easter slip past without thinking about this relationship, this purpose and this life and challenging which of those you need to claim for yourself this morning. Don't let the resurrection of Jesus leave you unclear about the difference it should make in your heart because it should change everything. It should change everything. Because the risen Jesus wants to make a home in your heart and he wants to reshape it He wants to remake it, he wants to remould it, and he wants to redirect it towards eternity. Praise God that Jesus is risen. Amen? Praise God that we can now call the one true God our God. Praise God that in him we have a purpose. Praise God that in him we have new resurrection life that is filled and characterized by the thick presence of God. He is the great I am. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the great life giver. And he has overcome sin and death and he will reign forevermore. He is risen. He's risen indeed. We're going to share communion together. As we take the bread, let's obviously remember about the body of Christ that was broken on the cross. The way his sacrifice paved the way of the resurrection. If you believe in Jesus Christ, please take that body and join with us this morning. If you're not sure what Jesus means, don't be scared to pass it by, but please don't walk out this place without asking the question, without asking yourself what Jesus meant for you, what the resurrection means for you. Don't leave unclear about that. Come speak to me, speak to any of the pastors. Don't let this opportunity go. Don't let this Easter slip past without asking a question about what Jesus and his resurrection means for you can mean for you understanding his relationship purpose and life and as the cup comes around let's hold it together and drink it as a sign of unity as we drink as one in our remembrance and joy in the beauty of his resurrection i'm just going to pray then we'll pass the symbols around dear lord we thank you for your death on the cross we thank you for your love that you allowed yourself to go there we thank you for your resurrection that in it we have victory, in it we have life, in it we have hope, Lord. That through that act, you have completely reshaped our relationship with God. You have reshaped our purpose, that we can now be sent out to share that joy with others, Lord. And you have given us a new life that can never be taken away from us. Lord, you indwell us with the Holy Spirit so that we do life with you in a way we never could before. Lord, we pray for everyone here that they will reflect on what that means for them. Lord, we pray that you will touch people's hearts, that your spirit will convict them this morning, that we might know who you really are, that we might do life with you in a way that is living and active and and replicates the victory that we see on Resurrection Sunday. Lord, bring yourself to our front of minds as we take these emblems this morning and we worship you together. And everyone said, Amen.